You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before Yahweh, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to Yahweh, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to Yahweh is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before Yahweh. Lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then, from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to Yahweh its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys, with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to Yahweh. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before Yahweh and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to Yahweh, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is Yahweh's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. This is also a Saturday, specifically Saturday, April 8th, 2023, the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And my family and I, we are not going to plan anything for today. We're going to take it easy. We are going to lay low and rest and think contemplate ahead of tomorrow, which is Resurrection Sunday. Some people are uncomfortable with calling it Easter because Easter maybe has some connotations for having been mixed in with non-Christian religious observations and things like that. Uh, It doesn't bother me all that much, but 
Also, it doesn't bother me to say it's Resurrection Sunday. That doesn't bother me. That's all right. Uh, We should. Remember, the resurrection specifically, Good Friday has to do with the crucifixion, the unjust execution of an innocent man. In fact, the only innocent man who has ever lived truly innocent. Now, we say innocent, and humanly speaking, what we would mean is not guilty of any crime that merits death at the hands of another human being or by the power of the governing authorities, shall we say. Somebody is innocent if they have done nothing which, humanly speaking, merits the death penalty. Now, our sin, on the other hand, our sin separates us from a holy and righteous God, and all of us are born into sin. If you don't think that you have a sinful nature, then I would say that is also, in part, an expression of your sinful nature, that you are blinded to it. It's also an expression of our living in a fallen world, in a sinful world. We live in a world where there is so much sin that we think very often you just grade on a curve. As long as you're better than most people or you're as good as most people, shall we say, that's what defines right and wrong. And that defines whether you're a good person. But if we measure ourselves against God's holy, righteous, perfect standard, then we find that we fall short. And that is the reason why the Messiah came to pay the penalty for his people's sins, to restore them to a right standing with God, to atone for their sins, to atone for our sins if we are in Christ. And so I would encourage you, I would encourage you to be thinking about the arrest, the mistreatment of, the kangaroo trial of Christ, the back and forth over whether he was going to be released, whether he was guilty of anything, whether he was going to be crucified, and why, the fact that he was flogged and mocked and spat on and beaten, and then ultimately was crucified for our sake, in obedience to the Father's will. But also, remember, don't forget that the tomb is empty, that Christ is risen, that we, in Christ, have the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That is to say, we are going to live forever with Christ. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we will have new bodies. We will be made whole again. If we are sick, if we are ill, if we are incomplete, something was lost, either in utero or in the course of life, we will be made whole and we will rule and reign with Christ in the new heavens and new earth, enjoying him forever, having fellowship with one another and with God forever because of what Christ did, because of what Jesus did on Good Friday. And God raised him from the dead, just as it is written on the third day. But let's talk briefly before we read a selection or two from the story of Christ's arrest and his trial. I want to talk 
about Leviticus chapter 3, which I read at the top of this episode. Laws for peace offerings can offend the sensibilities of the modern reader who lives in the developed world, who has never seen an animal slaughtered or butchered or processed in the way that animals must be in order to end up on our grocery store shelves or in our refrigerator or on our grills or in our frying pans. Meat comes from animals. Some enterprising scientists are working on making artificial meat, synthetic meat. I think that's weird. I think that's gross. But maybe it's not wrong. I just hope it's not going to turn us into zombies or some crazy thing like that. I've read too many Michael Crichton books to trust that (laughs) science is always going to deliver benefit. I've read too much history to trust that science will only ever give us good things and not ever horrible, terrible things. Also, by the way, I lived through, as you did, the years 2020 to 23. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I I don't just trust the science. I don't trust the science like so many do. And more on that in this episode as well. But lest we get too far off track, Leviticus 3 may offend the modern reader for its specificity with regards to what belongs to Yahweh God in the way of peace offerings and which organs and which cuts. And oh, by the way, let's just camp out for a moment on the whole business regarding fat. Did you know that the fat, God says, belongs to Yahweh? In fact, all fat is Yahweh's. Have you ever given any thought to Leviticus 3.17? It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. I was talking with some friends here recently about foods in other countries and what you don't want to eat and what you do want to eat. And one of the items on the list for me that I just never even want to try, I never even want to give it a go, is blood pudding or blood sausages or black sausages. I don't want to eat blood. That's gross. And actually, there's something untoward about it, according to God. Now, I'm not a terribly squeamish person. I have delivered most of Lawrence and my children. Half of our children at this point have been born at home But even the ones who were born in the hospital, I've caught, I've cut the umbilical cords for, I've cleaned them up, I've helped Lauren to get cleaned up after births, I have been the one standing by and helping and assisting and delivering when my wife has given birth to our children. And I don't know if you know this, but it is not for the faint of heart. It is not for those who are squeamish. There are all kinds of (laughs) sensory inputs, I'll put it that way, uh, which somebody who is squeamish, somebody who has a delicate constitution, will say, oh, about during the birthing process. Also, too, I am a bit out of practice, but I hunted for several years when we lived in Montana. I haven't hunted since we moved to Colorado, but 
someday I would like to get back into it. And with hunting, you don't just go out there hiking around carrying a gun and shooting animals and just leaving them. You don't do that. If you're a responsible hunter, you are trying to have as quick a kill and harvest as you possibly can once you've acquired the animal you have the tag for and have an interest in putting in your freezer. That's how it goes. That That is responsible hunter ethics 101. One shot, one kill. Drop the animal. Harvest it. But in order to harvest it, you have to gut it. And then thereafter, you take it home. In my case, I have processed all of our own uh, game. I've never taken any of the deer that I've harvested to anyone else. But I'll enlist my family. I'll enlist my friends, if they're around, in butchering a deer. But you gut the animal in the field. You leave its various internal organs out there in the snow and in the grass, and something will come along and make use of them. Fear not. (laughs) They will be recycled. But in my case with deer, I take them home. I hang them up with gimbals in the garage, typically for three days. You let the meat tenderize a bit, various processes go on. With the breakdown of the meat, not to the point where it's going to spoil, but you let it break down enough to where it's going to be tender. And then you quarter it. And then you take your cuts and dispose of the rest. Dispose of the connective tissue and the bones and the sinews and silver flesh and all that kind of stuff. So I am not a squeamish person. I read Leviticus 3 and I think to myself, of processing deer, for instance. And images come back to mind, smells and sounds come back to mind of processing deer as a hunter. And I also, at the same time, think of so many people in America today who don't know where their food comes from. They order a burger at their favorite restaurant or drive through and they have no idea how that burger comes to be a burger and stops being a cow at a certain point. They don't know and they don't want to know. And for my part, I actually do want to know. I I want to know where my food comes from. My ideal, my dream is to have a place out in the country and to raise our own food and to sit on the front porch in a rocking chair with sweet tea or a cold beer and my pipe and write novels. My actual <laughs> original entry <laughs> into uh, writing was not nonfiction. It was fiction. I, went, I wanted to write fantasy novels. And it's just been the case that there's so much going on in current events that I can't in good conscience ignore and not speak to. In fact, if I don't attend to these things. I would never have the ability to sit on a porch in a rocking chair and write fantasy novels. I just wouldn't be able to do it because our country is in trouble and it's headed in a bad direction. My family, my wife, my children, my extended family, my friends need this from me right now. And so this is what I'm going to offer and 
Lord willing, we'll live and do this or that. Maybe at a future date, I get into writing my novel again. I resume that. Maybe not. But coming back to Leviticus 3, which cuts belong to God and even the sprinkling of blood against the sides of the altar and God saying, these organs and these cuts are mine. The fat is mine. You eat neither fat nor blood. That is unusual. And yet it shouldn't be. You know, think to yourself, if you are somebody who likes animals and you're just horrified at the idea of something like this happening to an animal and that being okay, and how could a good God tell his people to do this to animals, innocent animals, right? Minding their own business. What did they do? Take a step back for a moment and realize that unless you are prepared to go entirely vegan, apart from the modern industrialized meat processing industry and grocery stores as we know them, which have only been really around for the past century or so, thanks to electricity, unless you're willing to just be a total vegan and not eat animal products, your life at this time in human history involves slaughtering of animals. You're either doing it yourself or you're helping to process the meat or you're around when other people who are doing that are doing their thing. So this is just part of life. For God to say, the fat belongs to me, the blood belongs to me. It's not to say that there, there wouldn't be fat getting cut off of this meat otherwise. It's just God saying, no, this is mine. <clears throat> and also, it's God associating death with sin in our minds. He knows that those two things are connected, but this is pedagogy. This is instructive. This is to teach us to understand and appreciate that our sin has consequences. Our sin brings death into the world and has, and the sins of our ancestors have brought death into the world. And God will make it right, but we don't get access to the benefits there. We only get access to the judgment there apart from faith in God and faith in Christ. That's the point here in Leviticus 3. But this is important. It's important that we not put so much so much psychological distance between ourselves and the consequences of our sin that we excuse ourselves for sin. If we understood more and better, more clearly, that man's sin brought death into the world in the first place, we would work harder to put our own sin to death and pursue faithfulness and obedience. And, and we would give thanks more readily to God for his grace towards us. We just would. You know, all of these animals that were offered up as offerings and sacrifices to God under this system, uh, for one, they were going to die anyways. <laughs> they were. Uh, for two, <clears throat> animals are not people. People are made in God's image. Mankind is made in God's image. The animals are not made in God's image. That's important to note. But also, too, consider with me, if you will, what a lot of the cults and religions of the peoples who were around at this time were doing as part of their religious ritual. Human sacrifice. The Norse did it 
for instance. They did it with regularity. The Greeks and the Romans, it would appear from my reading of ancient histories, the ancient Greeks and Romans did it. And we don't think of them in terms of being so barbaric, but they did. Some ancient cults and religions still practice human sacrifice. And as a matter of fact, this was the impetus for the conquistadors putting to death so many Aztecs, so many of the Mexica, that they engaged in these massive human sacrifice rituals on their pyramids, cutting the beating hearts out of living people who were captives from battle or from tribute to appease the gods. And this is a corruption of what God says in his word, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So what do we do? There is a sin problem, and we understand instinctively that there is a separation between us and God. What do we do apart from God telling us how this goes? What we do is we shed one another's blood. This is the basis for capital punishment. When the government puts a murderer to death, this is the basis for armies fighting and killing each other on battlefields. Someone has sinned and a debt must be paid when two countries go to war. And always, you will always have trading of accusations of whose sin needs to be atoned for and with whose blood that will be negotiated on the battlefield by generals and officers and advisors and kings and emperors and presidents and prime ministers. But it's actually a great mercy from God that he tells his people, do not offer up your children to me as sacrifices like the gods of the nations I'm driving out before you did in worshiping their gods. That's an abomination to me. Don't do it. And what does God give them instead? He gives them a system of sacrifices whereby they will kill a lamb or a goat or a bull, for instance. And this is pedagogy because ultimately the blood of these animals cannot cleanse us from our unrighteousness. But these are a foreshadowing of Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. And that is enough. It is sufficient. It is finished means that's enough. It's done. Believe it. Trust that. Know it. Live in light of it. Be free. God in Christ has called you to be free. So be free in that knowledge and live in light of it. Moving on. As I said, we're going to be getting into some treatment of the arrest of Christ, the trial, the crucifixion in this episode. But first, I want to talk about a news item, a very curious news item from theblaze.com, Michelle Blood, last name Blood, ironic, writes, Michelle Blood writes, April 8th, that is today, nude Florida man arrested after wild chase in stolen school bus with a dead deer in the back. Pennsylvania police. (laughs) 
arrested a Florida man driving a stolen school bus with a dead deer in the back following a wild multi-county pursuit. Multiple outlets reported, quote, not only is it a felony because it's a vehicle, but the new part you add into it now, were there any children inside? Did the mail stop to pick up any children? Carroll Township Police Department's Chief Thomas Wargo told WPMT, quote, none of that was known at the time. Quote, the cop was blocking both lanes, and then when it opened up a little bit, I was filming, and I was able to see the bus going over the embankment there and hoping there were no kids in it. Jody Leininger, a witness to part of the dangerous chase, told the outlet. No children were aboard the bus, and no one was injured during the chase. Chief Wargo also said, Tony J. Saunders, a 25-year-old man from Port St. Lucie, Florida, was charged with fleeing an officer, receiving stolen property, resisting arrest, and reckless driving. Now, as an aside, this is not super serious, but it is worth noting, any news item that begins with Florida Man is bound to be odd and hilarious and (laughs) uh, unique, right? Unique. Florida Man is like a cryptid, you know, just imagine how would it be if centuries from now, people looking back through just the text of our news items, keep seeing these references to Florida man. Like, who is this Florida man? And why was he such a weirdo? Like, (laughs) There's something about Florida just makes people crazy sometimes. Uh, Florida man, nude. (laughs) So, Naked uh, on a high-speed chase in a stolen school bus with a dead deer in the back. What in the world? Where, where do you even start in unpacking that? And not even in Florida, right? He's up in Pennsylvania. Why is he in Pennsylvania stealing school buses, putting dead deer into them? Was the dead deer already in the school bus when he stole it? Where did his clothes go? Why? Like, there are so many questions. There are so many questions. Uh, It's hard to know even where to begin. Well, part of why I bring this story up, uh, part of why I bring it to your attention is I was asked by my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez. He asked myself and our friend Roy Garcia, uh, I believe it was yesterday, what we make of Mark 14 verses 51 to 52. And he sent us a screenshot. And (laughs) we... (laughs) Uh, I I haven't heard what Roy has to say. I'll be honest. Um, I don't know if there's going to be any solving this mystery. But the screenshot reads as follows. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. This is immediately after Verses 49 and 50. Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. So you've got a chaotic scene during the arrest of Christ. And this has been a question for a long time. Mark, why do you include this detail? Mark is the shortest gospel. It is the shortest of the Four Gospels that we have in the New Testament. Very brisk pace. Almost like Mark 
is in a hurry, he's talking fast, and maybe a little bit ADHD. Oh, then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this. And okay, I got to run. I got to run. But there you go. There, there's the gospel in a nutshell. This is like the Cliff's Notes version. And all the more is it odd, because it is Mark's gospel, that he takes the time in these two verses to tell us about a young man who was naked under a sheet and fled naked, leaving his garment behind because they tried to grab hold of him. They were going to arrest him, it seems, along with Jesus. And the question is, why? <laughs> what, is, what is this about? What is going on? What is happening? And I don't know the answer, but I'll give you a couple of possibilities, a few theories. One is that this is just a part of it. You have a outburst of evil with the arrest of Jesus, and maybe this guy was troubled. Maybe he had some mental health issues. Maybe he had some kind of a demonic attachment. He had a familiar spirit. I think if that were the possibility that we would put stock in, we could find parallel instances where that sort of thing happens elsewhere in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. There's a young woman, for instance, a girl in the book of Acts who is following, it says, both Paul and Barnabas for several days, calling out, announcing them before Paul becomes impatient and becomes irritated and frustrated with her and casts the demon out. And then all of a sudden, this is when Paul and Barnabas get arrested. They get into all kinds of trouble with the locals because this girl was a slave whose masters made a lot of money off of her being troubled. I think here of like Billie Eilish, right? A troubled young lady who has a lucrative problem. It is a money-making problem for the people who handle her. They have a vested interest in her continuing to be disturbed because people are attracted to that. If she can tell them their fortunes and tell them things that no human could know, but the demons can know, familiar spirits can know, then it's a major problem that Paul and Barnabas cast out this demon because this girl's owner's business model was contingent on her continuing to have this problem. And it's quirky that this goes on for several days in the book of Acts before Paul gets fed up and casts out the demon. It's a quirky thing, but it's a human story. It's a real event that happened. These were real people who had real personalities, who were not always tranquil, placid, peaceful, serene, unruffled, unflappable. No, at a certain point, Paul's like, all right, that's it. Enough. <laughs> and one wonders, you know, was he reluctant to cast out the demon? Because practically speaking, you cast out this demon. And these owners have a business model. We don't know. That's speculative. I'm not going to go way out on that limb, but... It's at least a possibility that occurs to me that that was a dilemma, given what happened next. And Paul was no dummy. Paul was not stupid. He was not unobservant. He surely must have known 
that there would have been a consequence to casting out this demon. He must have surely known that she was property and a slave. Here also, maybe you have somebody who's following after Jesus and the disciples, and he's troubled. That's why he's naked. He's troubled. And it's just a little bit of chaos thrown in there to try and disrupt further, destabilize further the situation. That could be. Another possibility is that this young man is one of the disciples, actually, who has fallen asleep. Perhaps it was hot and he was wearing a sheet, but it was dark and he was sleeping in the buff. That could be. Another possibility is that he's just some guy. He's just some guy who was randomly in the area. And this is a detail that's thrown in. Actually, my friend Kale Rogers suggested this possibility. You know, this could be one of those details that only people who were actually there would know. Only someone who was really there when Jesus was arrested would know this. And it's an authenticator for everyone who was also there or even received this information secondhand from people who were there personally. This is the kind of detail that maybe people don't always talk about, but the ones who know, the ones who were there were like, yeah, that that did happen. And that was super weird. You know, almost like your secret questions, your security questions, when you set up a password online, what do you do usually when you're creating an account online? In case you forget your password, either you'll give them your phone number or your email address so they can send you a reset code and that gives an added layer of security, or you'll set up security questions that only you would know the answer to. Somebody hacking your information, stealing it, selling it online, they're not going to know the answer to your security question, presumably. Maybe it's like that. Uh, Another possibility to my way of thinking is this is the kind of detail that gets thrown in by somebody who's just like, yeah, it was super weird. I don't know what to make of it. You know, I think, for instance, I've talked about dreams before and having dreams and not being ready to just rule out all dreams as being projections of our subconscious. I don't accept that. I'm not comfortable with saying that's all dreams ever are. I do believe sometimes God sends us dreams that we should interpret or we should find somebody who's able to interpret them or we should at least keep them in mind. Make a mental note. Come back to that in future. If events start to unfold the parallel, what happened in your dream, maybe that leads you to go back to the word, to ask God for wisdom, to seek godly counsel, all good things. But when I have considered carefully how I talk about dreams, because I don't want to say, this is a prediction of what will happen in the future, and you should all be really impressed at me and my spirituality, that God may have given me a dream that no one else knows unless I tell them. I want to be very careful. So I'll listen back through my messages. If I send a private message to somebody talking about this, or I'll listen back through my podcast episodes because I want to be sure that I am being a good steward of the opportunity to speak to you and tell you things. I'll listen back through and I'll think to myself, you know, if anybody would say, Garrett, Don't talk about your dreams because that is you promoting yourself. or That's you trying to brag and boast about how spiritual you are. No, no. Listen, for one, God sent dreams and visions even to pagan kings. 
God sent dreams that troubled Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not a super spiritual person. God sent dreams to rulers of Babylon. They weren't super spiritual people. So no, I don't think I can do that. I don't think anybody should do that. If anybody tries to do that, remind them. Yeah, God sends dreams to pagan kings too. I don't don't get such a big head. <laughs> but I think to myself that maybe actually it's helpful, it's wise for me and humble for me, and it adds credibility to my testimony if I say, here's the dream that I had, and I have no idea what it means. I think it's significant. I'm not even sure if it's significant, but I think it is, but I don't know what it means. Maybe John Mark is doing a similar thing here. Now, John Mark, by the way, is traditionally thought to be the same Mark, the evangelist, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Also, interestingly, interestingly, John Mark is the one who Paul and Barnabas have their falling out over whether to take him with them on their missionary journeys. They have a big rift, a big row over whether John Mark should accompany them because he abandoned them at a certain point in an earlier journey. They have such a sharp disagreement that they go their separate ways in Acts chapter 15. Nevertheless, John Mark, or Mark, the author of the gospel according to Mark, maybe he throws this detail in here and he doesn't even know for sure what it means, but God has some special significance for us to understand. Maybe a possible benefit for us is to realize that these chaotic things happening in no ways should be confused with delegitimizing Christ. What is said about Christ by the religious leaders who want to dismiss him? They point out the company he keeps, that he eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. They point out that he keeps company with people who are not of good moral character as a way of trying to create a guilt by association dismissal in the minds of those who want to hear what Jesus has what what Jesus has to say, they don't want to ask the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders these questions anymore because Jesus speaks as one with authority, not like them. But maybe you have a similar sort of a thing here where we are to understand that this was happening even during the arrest. You have chaos even just during the arrest of Jesus in the garden. And yet, that in no way should be taken to mean that there's something untoward about him. There's something insufficient or inadequate. Again, that's speculative. We don't know. But we do have this little tidbit. He was naked under a sheet. They tried to grab him. He slipped away. All they got was the sheet, and he ran off into the darkness naked. Imagine being that guy, whoever he was. How embarrassing for that to be your part of the story. What were you doing when Jesus was arrested? Well, I'd rather not talk about it. Moving on, let's talk about a couple of current events items. The Daily Wire reports judge overseeing Trump's hush money case donated to Biden campaign. 
the New York judge overseeing the Manhattan trial of former President Donald Trump, donated to Trump's rival, President Joe Biden, during the 2020 campaign. Not a lot. $35 to Democratic causes in 2020, including $15 that went to Biden's campaign and $10 that went to a leftist group focused on resisting Donald Trump's radical right-wing legacy. The New York Post reported, the donations have caused even left-leaning legal analysts to question the ethical implications of merchants' democratic contributions. Now, I'll just stop right there. All we need for the purposes of this discussion is to recognize that there is a obvious political bias. There is a conflict of interest for the Democrats to be prosecuting Donald Trump over this, in particular, in Manhattan. And I want to use this news item as a segue to telling you a story about yesterday. So yesterday, while working with two who shall remain nameless, but who I will describe to you by their political affiliations, two people I work with who have very decided political leanings. One of them is conservative, at least in terms of I gather from conversations we've had, voting Republican. He's conservative in that way. Not a Christian from any indication I can see, not socially conservative, but politically conservative. And there's a different there's a difference. There's a distinction. It matters, it's important. And I think political conservatism by itself can't survive. It's like cut flowers. Put them in water, they'll be pretty for a few days, and then they'll wither and they'll die versus if you leave them planted and they can stay alive from the root system. But one of these two guys is politically conservative. The other one is very, as it turns out, very politically on the left. He is of the left. And the conversation started like this. So uh, what do you think of this Trump indictment business? Right? That was the opening salvo. The response to the question from the conservative by the progressive was, I don't think anything's going to come of it. I'm really hoping for the Georgia case. I hope that's what gets him. I think that's what's going to get him. Either way, he needs to go to prison. And so that led into some questioning from myself and the other political conservative. I am politically conservative, but I'm also before that socially conservative. And I'm also before that theologically conservative. That's the line of descent for me is I'm theologically conservative. thereafter socially conservative. thereafter politically conservative. But the questions from myself and the other conservative were, oh, really? Uh, Why do you think he should go to prison? And the answer was because of his mishandling of classified documents and all kinds of things. He's tried to systematically undermine our democracy and destroy our democratic institutions, and he should go to prison for that. And then, again, a question from us was, oh, really? (laughs) You mean like, like Biden, like the current president who had truckloads of documents stashed away, not properly disposed of or given over to the National Archives. You mean like President Biden did even more? Oh, there's no evidence of that. Yeah, yeah, there's actually there's mountains of evidence. And I'll spare you the play-by-play, but the long and short of it is 
very, very quickly, the temperature in the room and in the conversation dialed up like very fast. It came to a boil very fast. And long and short of it, we had to stop talking about these things with this very progressive. And this is the first time I've ever come across anybody working in oil and gas for 11 years. I've never come across somebody who was of the left like this in the industry until yesterday. And hopefully we can still be friends. I hope. I hope we can. But there were some expletives and some angry words from this progressive I work with. And we had to move on. And the point I want to make here is it is not no big deal. It is not just politics as usual what's being done in a case like Trump's. This matters whether you like the guy or you don't. It matters whether equal weights and measures are being applied here, regardless of political affiliation, regardless of likability, regardless of other considerations pertaining to character, wisdom, honesty, integrity. The facts of the case need to lead to the same kinds of conclusions and verdicts whether this is Trump doing a thing or it's Biden doing a thing, whether this is a Republican or this is a Democrat, whether this is somebody on the left or somebody on the right, whether this is a Christian or a non-Christian, you don't use different standards based on whether this person is going to benefit you politically. You just don't do that. Not when it comes to justice, not when it comes to criminal charges, civil charges. And definitely you don't just sit by silently when This is being done in an election cycle with somebody who is running for president actively and was former president of the United States. There's a conflict of interest here that smacks of corruption and this whole business surrounding Trump and how the Democrats have handled him and responded to him. It is extraordinarily corrupt. These people should not have political power who have been involved in it. Anybody who has been complicit in this should be driven from office, and they should never hold the public trust again, ever, ever, ever. They shouldn't be running a lemonade stand where your kid works, much less the country, much less the world. And fortunately, two-thirds of Americans, according to Tim Pierce over at the Daily Wire, two-thirds of Americans say Biden does not deserve another term as president. The new CNN poll, he writes, was conducted by SSRS, Throughout the month of March, the new numbers suggest that the improvement Biden saw after Democrats overperformed expectations in the 2022 elections may have backslid. The poll was almost entirely completed before news of former President Donald Trump's indictment broke at the end of last month, so the poll is not a reflection of how Americans' attitudes may have changed because of that. Biden's approval rating hit 42%, with a disapproval rating of 57%. So there's only 1%, if you could even say that, probably less than 1%, who are undecided. In January, those numbers were 45 and 55, respectively. The difference is within the margin of error for the poll, however. Skipping on down, less than a third, 32% of Americans, said that Biden deserved another term. That's compared to 67% of respondents who said he did not. So again, not a lot of undecideds here. I don't know if it was an option for people to say, I don't know, I'm not sure. No, one third though, one third 
One third of our countrymen do think Biden deserves another term. Don't miss that. One third is quite a lot of people who could get mean if justice is delivered in an even-handed way towards Biden. And they'll make all manner of excuses to one another and to themselves for doing anything that enters their imagination to do in the interest of supposedly defending democracy. And we should understand defending democracy to really be a stand-in for defending Democrats and the progressive agenda. They can't distinguish or separate those things in their minds. And we'll see where that goes. I don't know that it can go anywhere good. It would take a miracle to persuade the people who are just dead set. And and they see red. We need to understand that. We see red in their eyes when we get to talking about these things and disagree on even the most minor of points. This is another thing we should understand about human nature. I'm not... <clears throat> Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Donald Trump is a stand-in for Jesus here, but I'm going to read for you a selection pertaining to the arrest of Christ. And I want you to consider the ramifications for how we perceive broader society, lynch mobs, angry, offended, status quo types, political institutions, the justice system, geopolitics, etc. Because this is instructive. It doesn't just reflect on the character of Christ. It also tells us who we are and who we don't want to be, but could easily be apart from the grace of God. John chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out. 
Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now what's happening here, ladies and gentlemen, is messy and ugly and uncomfortable and contentious and scary and wonderful and good and right and true all at the same time, but not unless you pay close attention. Are you going to derive a benefit or realize all of that? Notice, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers put the, they, they put the crown of thorns <clears throat> on Jesus' head and they put a purple robe on him. And all of this is done in a very mocking way. This is all done along with Hail King of the Jews in a mean, cruel, contemptuous way. Something you need to understand about human psychology is we are not meant to take one another's lives. That is not how it's supposed to be. Because we are made in God's image, something breaks when we see the violent taking of a human life, particularly if we're the ones engaging in it. Or if you even see that murderous look in somebody's eyes, that can be a traumatic thing because that's not how it's supposed to be. But Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman writes in his book on killing that one of the things people who are bent on taking a human life will do to help reduce the psychological cost of taking a human life, one of the things they will do is dehumanize the person they're about to kill. Before they kill, they will try and convince themselves and those around them that this isn't really life worthy of life. This is not really a human being I'm about to do violence to. They're not really a human being like I'm a human being, like you're a human being. So we're going to do whatever we want to them. But first, we have to destroy them psychologically, spiritually. We have to destroy or erase or obstruct their humanity in order to not pay that psychological cost, in order to not feel all that trauma. That's part of what's happening here with the treatment of Jesus is at the same time as Pilate is afraid, because this isn't just some common criminal, some crazy person. There's something different about Jesus, and yet he doesn't want to accept that because he's in a bit of a pickle. He's between a rock and a hard place here, politically. Pilate is supposed to keep the peace here. If he has a major revolt on his hands, not only could it be deadly for him and his men, I don't know that he's even first and foremost worried about that, but the Jews make a different kind of an argument. They say, basically, you should be afraid for reprisals from Rome. They've kind of accepted that Rome is stronger than they are militarily, and they can't win an outright conflict and fight with the Romans. So that's not the avenue. But what they're threatening is that they'll pull some strings 
and word will get back to the Senate or word will get back to the emperor that Pilate hasn't taken care of business here. He's neglecting his duties. And if there's an investigation into that and it's coupled with some uprisings and these guys are saying, well, we were upset because this guy was claiming to be king. We have no king but Caesar. Pilate wouldn't do anything about it. Well, where is that going to go? How's that going to work out for Pilate? His handling of this situation is self-serving and entirely motivated by self-preservation. And yet he's afraid because he does clearly recognize there is something different and particular about Jesus. He's afraid when he finds out that Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God. A Son of God to a Greek or a Roman would indeed be a hero or a king in all probability. Somebody you don't mess with. Alexander the Great styled himself a son of God after a fashion. But what was meant by that, if you look at Greek mythology, what was meant by that was that Zeus, for instance, had impregnated his mother, slept with his mother. And so he had demigod status and the powers of a god or the strength and speed of a hero without necessarily all of the godness of a god. So here's Jesus, and Jesus has been delivered over to him. And there's something clicking for Pilate in what he's observing about Jesus, what he's hearing about Jesus, what he has heard to this point, perhaps, in rumors about this Jesus character. And yet, they flog Jesus. The soldiers twist a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a purple robe on him. Is this a test? Is this a, let's see if you really are who you say you are. If you are who you say you are or who these people say you are, then you'll be able to stop us. And if you're not, then we don't need to be afraid of you. And then we can really destroy you. So it's testing, right? It's testing the waters in the run-up to going in for the kill, perhaps, possibly. Also, there could be an aspect of this that is, Let's do enough to him to where we can say we did something, and maybe that'll be enough. Maybe that'll satisfy the religious leaders who've handed over Jesus to be crucified here. Maybe that'll be enough. That'll satiate them. If they see Jesus suffer a little bit, they'll be content. This will die down. And that's the problem with angry mobs. When you give them what they want, they want more of what they want. If you give them what they want, they just want to elevate their list of demands to the next tier. But you have something of a cat and mouse game and Pilate asserting dominance and also trying to convey a certain flippancy with regards to the Jews when he says, behold your king. He knows that's going to provoke them, but he's taunting them just like he wants them to know. I'm not afraid of you. You should be afraid of me. That's how this works. Behold your king. Shall I crucify your king? So he's making sport like he would if he were who Pilate is. This is a negotiation of sorts. When they say we have no king but Caesar, he's in some sense been played. And in some sense, he's playing them to give Jesus over to be crucified after they've said that. Because what's most important to Pilate is his own position 
being secure. And that means that the Roman Empire needs to be secure. And what we know from history is that hundreds of years after this, Rome will fall to the barbarians because of just this sort of self-serving, self-seeking calculation. This is not the character of a Scipio Africanus being displayed here by Pilate. This is cowardly and unjust. And when Rome became this way, to where national security was just whatever allows me to keep my job, that was the beginning of the end. This was the beginning of the end for Rome. And yet you see Constantine put an end to the persecution of Christians. And actually he flips the script and all of a sudden Christians are the paragons. They're the ones everyone else should aspire to be. They're the ones of good character. Now that doesn't mean nothing bad happened anymore. People didn't misbehave anymore. It was all just sunshine and rainbows from that point. But you wouldn't have gotten everything that happened after Constantine and Charlemagne on up to the present. You wouldn't have all of the good things that we have in the West today, which some are systematically trying to pawn off or destroy or dismantle in their greed and in their envy and resentment and bitterness and folly. You wouldn't have any of those things to lose in the first place if it weren't for Christ going to the cross. Notice also, too, where Jesus doesn't respond to him, doesn't answer the question. He's not pleading for mercy. He's not asking to be set free. When he's asked, where are you from? He gives no answer because this is not a genuine question. This is not a question in good faith. Pilate is nonplussed. You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Maybe the question Pilate is really asking is, do I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus' answer is, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, which is to say, it is a sin. You can't have a greater sin unless there is a lesser sin, unless there is a sinfulness to Pilate handing Jesus over in verse 16 to be crucified. But this idea, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above, and that the miscarriage of justice by Pilate here condemning an innocent man because the angry mob demands it and threatens him, that that is a sin. That idea we must remember when we're thinking of current events and the administration of justice in our country and by us and what role we play. If we keep silent when we see somebody being oppressed, deprived of their liberties, led away to the slaughter, if we keep silent or we go in with the many or we side with a rich man because we enjoy his bribes or we side with a poor man because we resent the rich man, we envy him, we want to see him destroyed, that is a sin. That is wicked. God does not leave that open to us just because our citizenship is in heaven. Is our citizenship in heaven 
in the sense that so many imply, is your citizenship in heaven in actual fact? If you would do what Pilate does here, you would do what the crowd does when they shout, crucify him. Is your citizenship in heaven if you would hand Jesus over to Pilate and commit that greater sin? Is your citizenship in heaven if you are unmoved by these things? That's an important question to ask. That's an important question we should take very seriously in our own case. Moving on, another current events item here. Harris Rigby writes for Not the Bee, publishing this morning, a dire warning in the wake of trans violence last week. There's a massively dangerous situation brewing in the United States when it comes to the whole transgender debate, and the covenant killings were just the tip of the iceberg. Transgender youth in America are being told that there's a genocide of trans people and that the right is violent toward transgenderism. And so, in the face of such violence, it shouldn't be shocking when someone like the shooter in Nashville internalizes that message and lashes out with deadly consequences. And it's all part of the plan. Read Aron's thoughts on this and tell me where he's wrong. And here we have an Aron McIntyre with a Twitter thread. The leftist plan for transgenderist violence is simple. Kick the dog until it bites. Progressives have used the media, educational institutions, and even the medical community to prime as many people as possible who are already mentally fragile with an ideology that tells them their very identity is under attack from every direction. When your artificially constructed identity is at odds with every other social norm, and biology itself, that's pretty easy to do. Take that already unstable construction and ramp it up with the lie that there's an active genocide against the transgenderist and the results are predictable. The left is encouraging these people to arm themselves while labeling anyone who disagrees with them a fascist. This is why the it's okay to punch a Nazi discourse was so important to progressives. They've been looking to justify this escalation for a while. The left praises trans ideology after Nashville and talks about being fierce and fighting back because they want to encourage more violence. They praise the assaults on state capitals and the assault on a female athlete because they want a state of fear. But most importantly, the left wants someone, anyone, to feel hopeless and lash out in retaliation. They kick the dog with reckless abandon, so the minute it tries to defend itself, they can justify shooting it. They want their George Floyd this summer, their Cassis Belli, their justification to once again unleash a wave of state-sanctioned rioting, security state crackdowns on their political opponents, or both. The reason progressives are encouraging more violence is that they are hoping to trigger violence in return. They own the media and the justice system. They know their side will pay little to no price, and the slightest bit of retaliation will become the new January 6th. The point being, stay safe and stay frosty out there. You have a two-tier justice system, whether you like it or not. Don't put yourself in bad situations and don't give these people what they want. Harris Rigby continues on. After that... Twitter thread from Aron McIntyre. We are priming the pumps for a major societal blow up on the scale of 2020. The media will keep downplaying the violence being perpetrated by transgender people, but the moment a trans person falls victim to violence, 
that's when they'll pounce. Then we'll see a new George Floyd for the left, Operation Trans Floyd, as James Lindsay calls it, and we will unleash another round of violent riots, just like in 2020, which will serve to further the cause of the left. Conservatives do not give them what they want, but also stay careful out there. Okay, let me push back on this just a little bit. <clears throat> just just a touch, just a smidgen. You cannot win by only playing defense. You can't. You just can't. That said, you do have to play defense. You do need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But you can't be wise as serpents only ever taking it. There needs to be some kind of a prescription here besides stay safe and stay frosty out there. There has to be some kind of a prescription besides just, oh, I'm the dog that gets kicked all the time. I guess I'll just not ever bite because they'll shoot me if I bite. If the person kicking the dog kicks the dog to death, is that a better outcome than if the dog bites and then gets shot? And I'm not advocating for a violent reaction here. And yet, and yet, what is happening in this country is an evil, heinous, sinful, wicked thing. When the shooter in Nashville targets the Christian school she used to attend and murders three children and three adults, and this White House says, we're on the side of the trans person. They're the real victim here. When this White House refuses even to describe the victims of this shooting as Christians, when the left has decided that this is what Christians get for being opposed to government as God and to the trans movement being our new state religion, at a certain point, there is going to be a civil war. Full stop. If they're not going to give up on their way of doing this, I guarantee you, at a certain point, it will be state versus state. And you will have the Republican states, which are even now shoring up their laws to say, no, you cannot do this to children in our state. No, you cannot abort children. No, you cannot mutilate their bodies as part of your neo-pagan earth-worshipping cult. No. Those states, I would anticipate, will be at war with the states that are demanding unquestioned obedience to the state as God. I think we will have another civil war. I think we will. I don't know when specifically. I don't know what will kick it off. But the indictment of President Trump on the terms that they indicted him and the angry back and forth that very quickly came to a boil from a calm, amicable conversation for days and days and days to a profanity-laced tirade and threat. We're either going to stop talking about this or I'm going to blow my top. When it can go like that that quickly, then I anticipate it is only going to get worse before we hit a breaking point. And then your options are going to be <clears throat> three, as I see it. And you should prepare yourself for these options. Uh, you should. You really, really should, in my view. 
Option A will be to actively support the left and to become an activist, to march in their protests, to stand with them in solidarity when they storm state capitals, to hold a sign when you're shouting down a conservative who comes to speak on your campus or in your public space, to threaten violence against anybody who disagrees with the left. That'll be option A. That is one option. And I think more and more people will choose that option if they think that that is the winning sign. And the media's initiative, the corporate mainstream media's initiative is we want to say that that is the winning hand. And yet it can't be. And it's a bluff. And we should recognize that it is a bluff. This is like playing cards with somebody who has a loaded revolver under the table and you know they have a loaded revolver under the table and you know that they're cheating and that they don't have the cards, but they do have that revolver. If you accuse them of cheating in the old West, they shoot you and they take all the winnings anyways. That's what we're dealing with, with the radical left in this country. Option two, right? First option is you go along with them. You become a party to their injustice and their evil and their depravity and their perversion, their wickedness. You go in with them. But Psalm 1 tells us not to do that. All through the Psalms and the Proverbs, we know, we learn that the one who will not do that, who meditates on God's law day and night, will be blessed and that the wicked are not so. The wind will blow them away like so much chaff. But the Man who meditates on God's law day and night is like a tree planted beside streams of water who bears fruit in his season. He prospers in everything that he does. So option two, friends, I think is what Aaron McIntyre and Harris Rigby are getting at. Option two is you bide your time. You bide your time. You mind your own business. You aspire to live a quiet life like Paul says in Thessalonians, you aspire to live a quiet life, minding your own affairs, working with your hands as they taught you, they being Paul and company, depending on no one so that you can walk properly before outsiders, so that you can have a good conscience and a good testimony. That's option two. I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. Also, I am not going to go in with the many to pervert justice. I won't do it. That's option two. And that is not a bad option. And if that's the best we can come to in good conscience, then that's the option we should choose. That is the option that we should pick. Uh, Option three. Okay, this one, I'm going to have to (laughs) thread needles carefully because there's a lot of potential here for confusion, misunderstanding, twisting my words, and I'm just going to say it anyways. What needs to be said here is option three is preparing for war with the left. Not that we want war, not that we start a war, but we're prepared to fight a war that the left is committed to provoking in this country. They have been, they are, and they will continue on until they get what they want. And what they want is an excuse to shoot the dog. Aron McIntyre is right, ladies and gentlemen. He's right. The left is kicking the dog in hopes that it bites so that the left can shoot the dog. This is the same cruel 
mercenary, utilitarian kind of engagement as the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees engaged in with Jesus in the New Testament. He performs his most miraculous sign and wonder that he is indeed the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and now they really hate him, and they want to kill him, and they start planning and scheming how they can do it, when they will do it, and they want to kill Lazarus as well. There is no reasoning with that. There is no winning that mindset over. And by the same, by, by the same kind of corruption, which should cause us to never want to be at their mercy and walk into a trap that they've laid, we also do not want a foreseeable future that is marked by them ruling over us. Because what happens if you actively affirm, support, endorse such corrupt men because they threaten to destroy you and anyone close to you otherwise? What happens when you affirm them? Well, you only make them more capable of doing as bad or worse to others. So option one is a no-go. It needs to be a no-go. Don't go in with the many, to pervert justice. Don't accept a bribe. You should hate bribes. You should also stubbornly refuse to cave in to threats. We'll do the worst to you compared with what we would have done to him for having told us no. The men of Sodom say that to Lot when he says, don't do this thing. They have in mind raping the two angels who have been sent to get Lot and his family out of the city before God destroys it. All he tells them is, don't do this thing. And that is enough to set them off. And it sends them over the moon. Because what the common denominator is in all of the claims, in all of the rigmarole, all of the song and dance, all of the cat and mouse, the common denominator is, I just want to get what I want. And don't you dare get between me and what I want. Don't you dare tell me no. Don't you dare. I'll destroy you. Because their God is their belly. And yet Romans 1 helps us to understand why they're so unreasonable. Because God has given them over to an unreasonable mindset. They became wise in their own eyes and their foolish hearts were darkened. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That means incapable of reasoning. They can't reason. You can't reason with them because they're given over to unreasonableness. Now, what can change that? God can allow them to know what is true and what is good and to understand it and to be reasonable. God can take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, convict them by the work of the Holy Spirit to confess their sins, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. But what we don't do is say, we will not engage at all in the work of responding to these things in hopes that God just saves the whole world and we never have to deal with criminals or villains or predators or tyrants. How would it be? For instance, let's just say hypothetically, 
you were the governor of a state, and your state elected lawmakers, who then in turn said, we are going to pass legislation in our state to protect children from having surgeries performed on them, to change them from boys to girls or girls to boys, to block them from going through puberty, from getting abortions, from being aborted, from being taught to be promiscuous and sexually immoral. We're going to pass legislation along these lines to protect the children in our state. And how would it be if the federal government said, we're going to enact a policy whereby if you do that, we will come in and start prosecuting your lawmakers, start investigating your public officials in that state who would execute these laws and enforce these laws and make rulings on these laws in cases where they've been broken. We're going to come in and arrest your governor or your legislature. We're going to investigate them and tie them up in the courts endlessly because you have passed this legislation, because you have taken measures in your own state to protect children. And how would it be if the governor of a state or the legislature of a state or the law enforcement in a state or the judiciary in a state said, well, we realize you guys are not Christians, and so we'll pray for you, but we'll do whatever you want. Just don't hurt us because we want to maintain our good Christian testimony. How would that be? Would that not be a dereliction of duty? Romans 13 says that the governing authority is a minister of God. Jesus answers Pilate in John chapter 19, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Also, do remember in the Old Testament, we have King Saul who is disobedient. God says to do a thing and Saul does not do that thing. God says to not do a thing and Saul does that thing. Saul is disobedient and unfaithful with the authority that has been entrusted to him. And God takes the kingdom away from him and gives it to David. David, meanwhile, is introduced to us as a shepherd boy guarding his father's flocks from wild animals that come to prey on them. David is introduced to us as a young man taking lunch to his brothers who are in the army as they're camped over and against the Philistines and their army. David is introduced to us as a young man who volunteers to fight the champion of the Philistines in single combat, trusting that God will give Goliath into his hands. David is a young man who provokes the jealousy of Saul because people are saying that Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And so Saul seeks David's life. But David does not retaliate in kind. He has the opportunity more than once to kill Saul and refuses to do it because Saul is the Lord's anointed as well. To kill Saul when David is anointed by Samuel to be next in line to receive the kingdom and to be king, to kill Saul would be to establish something of a precedent that this is something it is permitted to do to the Lord's anointed. And David will not do that because he fears God and he loves God And he trusts 
that God will deal with Saul as God sees fit. And that is a good model for us here. Now, if it turns out to be the case in our circumstance that it's a bit more complicated, it's a bit more involved than just you have a king or you have somebody waiting in the wing to be king. If it's a little bit more complicated than that, then we may need to play a cat and mouse game. And if the Lord wants the radical left removed, then the Lord can remove them. But on the other hand, if we have a system of checks and balances, whereby this govern this government was originally conceived of to not be unicameral, but to be bicameral, to not be one branch headed by a king, to not be centralized all in the hands of one man who becomes the law. Whatever he says is the law. No, no. He is under the law. He is under God, which means he cannot just do whatever he wants and say whatever he wants. And it becomes true for us, becomes good for us. God declares what is good, first and foremost. God declares what is true, first and foremost. God still rules and reigns. It may be the case that This is a lengthy, drawn-out predicament that we are in, but that God removes those who are oppressing us. And if that's going to be the case, if God is going to deliver us from our enemies and from evil and not lead us into into temptation, well, then it must be that we would put our trust in the finished work of Christ and that we would live in light of it. And that is not to say that you don't prepare for war. You know, I have friends who served in the military, for instance, who, if this country were invaded by an enemy, they would be able to band together with other veterans to help in the defense of our country from a hostile foreign power. Also, too, I've studied enough history to realize That in the Civil War, for instance, you had veterans of the Mexican-American War fighting on both sides. They had fought alongside each other during the Mexican-American War. They fought against each other during the Civil War. And we may see that. We may see that in our day where veterans of wars with Muslim radicals, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban, Saddam Hussein's forces— Veterans who fought alongside each other against terrorists in the Middle East will be fighting against each other here in the U.S. because we don't all agree on what is good and what is true and what is just and what is right. And the left has a notion to pick a fight. And they are and they have been. And what we should think to ourselves is not that if there's a fight, everybody's equally to blame, everybody's equally at fault. I mean, go back to John chapter 18, starting in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, 
to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? You know, we look at this. We look at this and we see Pilate testing Jesus. We see him challenging him, basically, because, well, clearly you must have done something wrong, right? You know, I think Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive, you have Dr. Kimball saying, I didn't kill my wife. And Tommy Lee Jones's character says, I don't care. And it's not until things continue to develop that you see this dawning realization that actually things click into place for Dr. Kimball to have been framed. It actually looks like he was set up. It looks like someone else killed his wife and made it look like he did it because he was on to something very, very badly wrong with a wonder drug that was going to be very lucrative. He was noticing that it was causing people to be very ill and the drug wouldn't have gotten approved and it would have been very damaging to the company's reputation for that to get out. But Jesus could have easily called down legions of angels and he doesn't here. And his servants, he says, would have been fighting if my kingdom were of this world. And some Christians think that that means Christians shouldn't get involved in political business, political affairs. And yet that can't be the case that we say God doesn't want his people to ever be involved in politics. Because if that were the case, if that were the case, then the Old Testament and God bringing Israel out of Egypt wouldn't make any sense. God bringing Israel into the promised land wouldn't make any sense. God taking the kingdom away from Saul wouldn't make any sense. God giving the kingdom to David wouldn't make any sense. God hasn't changed. Our understanding of God can change, but God doesn't change. So it's important to understand the context of Jesus being arrested and on trial and questioned by Pilate here. No, his kingdom is not of this world. Pilate's asking the wrong question. He's thinking in purely human terms, political terms. Are you a king of the Jews? Are you leading a revolt against Rome, essentially? That's what you're accused of. Well, that's all I really care about because that's what my job depends on. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So you are a king. You say that I am a king, which is such a great response. It's such a great, brilliant response. So you are a king. You say that I'm a king. In other words, you know. In other words, Pilate is like Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive. Only if Tommy Lee Jones were to say, the same people that killed Dr. Kimball's wife could kill me. The same people that framed him could frame me. And that's the calculation Pilate ultimately gives into. And it's, on the one hand, humanly speaking, a very reasonable conclusion to come to if there is no God to whom you will have to give an account. On the other hand, it's an extraordinarily unreasonable conclusion to come to when you realize this is God's own son and you are miscarrying justice. You are doing an evil thing to flog him when he's innocent, to crucify him when he is innocent. And you know that he's innocent. And you even say, I find no guilt in him. And we need to know this about human nature. We need to be cognizant of it so that we can remain blameless when it happens in our own time, before our very own eyes, to us and the people that we care about and love. Because, ladies and gentlemen, it has been, it is, it will be. Now, briefly, and then I've got to run. I got to go. When we consider 
that James, brother of Jesus, says we should consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds, for we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. That does not mean that you become a glutton for punishment and you go seeking martyrdom, you go seeking persecution, you go provoking with the intent of being persecuted. It also doesn't mean that if you have an opportunity for justice to be served, you pass it up because we're going to sin that grace might abound all the more. God forbid. By no means, Paul writes. Notice in Acts, when Paul is seized and he's about to be flogged, he's about to be flogged. What he doesn't do is say, well, Jesus was flogged, and so I need to be flogged right now in this case. He mentions that he's a Roman citizen. And oh, by the way, oh, by the way, speaking of unequal weights and measures, if it had been the case that Jesus was a Roman citizen, like Paul was a Roman citizen, if he had mentioned that he was a Roman citizen, he probably would not have been flogged, much less crucified. There would have had to have been a trial. He would have been afforded due process. Such as it was, he could be flogged even when he was innocent. He could have a crown of thorns put on his head and a purple robe to mock him as king of the Jews, draped around his shoulders without any due process. And yet Paul mentions that he's a Roman citizen. And suddenly the tribune is very nervous. And all of a sudden the situation changes. And all of a sudden, Paul is on his way to Rome with 270 soldiers to escort him to make sure that he gets there safely and isn't murdered on the way by 40 men who have taken a vow not to eat or drink until they've killed Paul. And why is that important? Because Caesar's household needs to hear the gospel. That was true in the New Testament. And ladies and gentlemen, we're still in the New Testament. We are in it. The New Testament is not closed until all of the events of Revelation have occurred and we have a new heavens and a new earth. The New Testament is still going to be going on actually forever because we see there the saints ruling and reigning forever in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ. But that is to say, Caesar's household still needs to hear the gospel and needs to be called to repentance. Herod still needs to be called to repentance, even if he's going to put us to death. And there I say, look at all of the martial metaphors and word pictures and analogies in the New Testament. Put on the whole armor of God. You don't wear armor unless you're fighting, unless you're in a battle. He who doesn't have a sword, let him sell his cloak and buy one. You don't need a sword unless you're going to fight. How do you fight? Ooh, now. Sun Tzu would say, the best strategy is to win battles without fighting. And that's a horse of a different color. So option three, going back to the dire warning to Christians and conservatives in the U.S. Option three is the option that I think most of us need to come to terms with. We fight or we die. How we fight is absolutely critically important, and it must be as God would lead and direct us to fight. How we prepare to fight must be, according to his word, by the leading of his Holy Spirit. Best you can do otherwise is just keep your head down, stay out of the way, 
mind your business, live a quiet life, aspire to live a quiet life, working with your hands, being dependent on no one, walking correctly, properly before outsiders. It doesn't mean for us any more than it did for the Thessalonian Christians that outsiders are going to give you a fair shake, but it does mean when they speak evil of you, when they try to get back at you for having disapproved of their lifestyle or cut into their business model of fortune-telling slaves who have familiar spirits or making idols, they have nothing to grab onto. They have nothing to get you on. And eventually they have to admit that. I find no fault in him, they say. And then we can count it pure joy to be associated with Christ and his sufferings. And however God blesses that, whether only in the next life or in this one as well, Psalm 1 is proven true. We'll prosper in all our ways and everything that we do, bearing fruit in our season. God knows when that is. But I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.